Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Still on our democracy series, but today we're looking a little closer to home. Britain will elect a new parliament soon. The Conservatives have been in power for 13 consecutive years. But could their rule be coming to an end? And much of what has been sold as whiskey in India isn't really. But now that some distillers are crafting the genuine single malt article, it's flying off the shelves and winning awards. First up there. The mid-2010s were not a good time to be a worker. The world was still recovering from the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. And some 7% of the labour force in the OECD club of mostly rich countries lacked work. The main conclusion is that unemployment is the big issue, that it will remain high. And many of those in work had what anthropologist David Graeber called bullshit jobs. Jobs with no real purpose. Wage growth was weak and income inequality seemed to be rising inexorably. How things change. Nearly a decade on, in the rich world, workers are now experiencing a golden age. Labour markets are changing fundamentally in a way that they haven't changed for a couple of decades. Christian Odendahl is The Economist's European economics editor. And there are three big changes. The first one is demographic, so society's age, so labor becomes scarcer and and better rewarded. And that's especially true for manual labor. Policy is changing too. Politicians are much more pro-worker and are running the economy hot, which increased demand for labor. And then we have technology, particularly artificial intelligence, which boosts workers' productivity in in quite new ways and creates demand for complementary services, but also for those workers that are unaffected by AI. And these trends in part reinforce each other, and that will transform the labor market and how it works. Okay, that does sound quite different from how labor markets were discussed in the last decade. What exactly has changed? The biggest shift is demography. It's slow moving, but it's the biggest change in labor markets. And the comparison to the mid-2010s, I think, is good because that was precisely the moment when in China the working age population has peaked. 
the population of Central and Eastern Europe, for example, had already been falling by that time. And before then, you know, Western firms could threaten to relocate production to Eastern Europe or could use the threat of, of Chinese competition. And there are estimates from the U.S. that this has depressed U.S. wages, for example, with a larger hit to lower wages. And that has also fueled sort of the populist politicians who promised to end this job theft from China or Central and Eastern Europe. And I think Brexit is in part also a result of that. And now the threat of outsourcing has become a lot less compelling and convincing because the geopolitics has changed, right? So from the mid-2010s on, companies that operated in China started to complain about their treatment in China. And workers are increasingly in, in short supply in the rich world too, especially those that can do manual work. And what impact is this shift having on the labor market or will it have? Yeah, so I think we can see already that companies are reluctant to let people go. There's a survey of small U.S. businesses where 90% said that they would like to retain their employees. And we have close to record numbers of job openings, even if unemployment is very, very low. For example, in Germany, it's like just 3%, and the U.S. is also very low. And the worker shortage that we are seeing in parts of the rich world is also part of the reason why we see an immigration boom towards the rich world. But even large-scale immigration won't pluck the coming gaps in the workforce. So the workers will be in even more demand and in turn will be able to be more demanding. Yes, absolutely. We see, we see that already. In Japan, wages are rising faster than at any time in the last 30 years. The tight U.S. labor market locally has led to quite substantial wage increases, especially for those at the lower end of the wage spectrum. And the effect is really large. I mean, the latest update of that research suggests that in just three years, so since 2020, almost 40% of the rise in wage inequality over the past 40 years has been undone. And that is a quite remarkable result. And similar trends are playing out in, in other parts of the rich world where unions, for example, negotiate better deals for those on lower income. So we're seeing that wage compression, as it were. We're seeing that already. Okay, so it sounds like it's a worker's world is what you're describing here. How are governments contributing to this? So I think in part there's more openness to support the case of workers through vocal support for unions and their pay demands and so forth. We also have very practical policies, so for example increases in the minimum wage. Throughout the inflationary period that we've just seen, real minimum wages, so if you deduct inflation, have actually held up quite well. And that is quite a remarkable achievement that governments have adjusted minimum wages so quickly to make sure that there's no real income loss. Then we have controversially trillions of dollars being spent on the green transition, on reducing dependence on China. These are controversial in part because they will come at a cost, of course, right? So we know that subsidy races between countries will eventually benefit the firms the most. We know that consumers will eventually pay for that, but those workers in protected professions or those at the, at the receiving end of these subsidies will have more bargaining chips to work with. But I think the most important shift is the shift in macroeconomic policy. So before the pandemic, we had a long period where inflation was too low, where demand was not strong enough, wages weren't growing fast enough. That was a bad time to be a worker. And now things are quite different, right? Many politicians seem to be aiming for what economists call a high-pressure economy, one that is running very close to potential. And that suits workers because it keeps demand for labor high. And it seems that aging societies, climate change, uncertain geopolitics all mean that governments will be more willing to spend big to fight these crises, which should create demand. And you mentioned earlier that AI will help boost the productivity and plug the workforce gap. Tell me a bit more about that. 
Yeah, so AI can do new things compared to previous waves of, of automation, right? It can do creative, improvised tasks, learning tasks, and so forth. And that is quite new. So take services jobs like uh, call center, right? So if AI can make a services worker more useful, more productive, that should then enhance the productivity and also job satisfaction. That is what we are seeing in early indications. And the research that we've seen so far suggests that those with less experience or slightly lower skills or so, they benefit the most from assistance by sort of an AI bot, if you want. And this could, of course, go further because many of the high-paid expert jobs and services, they are basically high-stakes decision-making that will require a lot of training and experience. And AI can help those with less training and experience to become such an expert a bit quicker. Okay, but you haven't exactly alleviated my fear that AI is going to come and take my job. True. So the adjustment, of course, will happen in various ways. So, of course, there will be some displacement, right? But there are also compensating effects that work in the other direction. So, for example, a higher productivity economy is a richer economy. And that means that creates demand elsewhere. And mostly those areas that will see a boost to demand are not the ones that are affected by AI, but those in other sectors, right? So, for example, manual labor, not affected by AI that much, at least not yet. That could see a boost or, you know, personal services. But then we will also see lots of new tasks emerging. Now, what these new jobs will be is, of course, a bit hard to predict. But what I think is important is that AI does not work in isolation, but in combination with the other forces that are changing labor markets at the same time. So, for example, in countries with severe demographic change, where tax accountants are already in short supply, if you have an AI that boosts the productivity of a tax accountant quite a bit, then most of that increased productivity will benefit that worker and the wages of that worker rather than replace him or her because there's already a shortage, right? So we have to understand all these different factors impacting labor markets at the moment and how they come together. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ora. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week, we've been looking at some of the big elections in a key year for democracy. Britain is almost certain to head to the polls in 2024. The country votes in new governments infrequently. The Conservatives have been in power for 13 years, while Labour was in charge for the same period before that. Sir Keir Starmer, the current Labour leader, says the country is crying out for new management. While Prime Minister Rishi Sunak the fifth Tory leader in a decade, is trying to run as a change candidate himself. But the polls suggest that voters aren't quite buying that message. Rishi Sunak said just before Christmas that there will be a general election in Britain this year, and the Conservative Party, to be quite blunt, goes in a fairly weakened state. Matthew Holhouse is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. It is lagging a long way behind 
in the polls and the Labour Party really has its tail up and really will be looking to make this into a cost of living election. Okay, let's dig into this a bit. Just how bad is the polling for the Tories right now? It's not good. So our poll tracker shows there's been a pretty consistent lead of around 20 points. Now, that is a similar sort of gap that you were seeing before the Conservatives' wipeout of 1997. Now, if that were replicated on a uniform national swing, that would suggest the Conservative Party losing uh, three quarters of its seats. Now, nobody really expects a defeat of that scale to happen because polls typically narrow in the course of an election campaign. But many Conservative MPs are concluding that they're in for some pretty heavy losses unless there's a really dramatic turnaround in the state of the polls. That is breeding a certain degree of fatalism or indiscipline amongst MPs, which really, you know, is a risk of that becoming a sort of a self-fulfilling dynamic. And what's behind this turnaround, the colossal fall from popularity that we're seeing in the polls? I think there are a number of trends that came together. One that political scientists are still trying to understand was whether Boris Johnson's election of 2019 was wholly contingent of some sort of extraordinary factors, namely the get Brexit done election and the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn, and that it would be very, very difficult for the party to replicate those. They're really sort of still battling the long tailwinds of Boris Johnson's conduct in office, the notorious sort of party gate affair, the broader sense of sleaze and decay around him. They're still suffering in a big way from the Liz Truss mini budget of September, October 2022, which really shook the sort of party's reputation for economic management in a way that it's not fully been able to claw back. Now, Rishi Sunak, when he came into power in October 2022, really hoped to sort of reset the record. But I think him being the fifth prime minister in 13 years, it's very difficult when you've been in power that long to fully reset the clock, as it were, in terms of public expectations. We We will give the country what it so sorely needs and yet too often has been denied, a government prepared to make long-term decisions so that we can build a brighter future for everyone. Be in no doubt, it is time for a change, and we are it. Thank you. More generally, looking away from the Labour Party versus the Conservative Party, when you ask voters, do you think it's time for change? Do you think it's time for a new team at the top? You get two-thirds or three-quarters of voters saying that they agree with that. That's a very difficult sentiment for any incumbent party to overcome. Now, how is the Labour Party capitalising on all of this? The Labour Party would primarily like to make this a cost-of-living election. Uh, We know that voters are going to be poorer in in real terms going into this election than they were in 2019, which is a very difficult thing for any incumbent government to battle against. There's a country out here that isn't being governed, where more than 100,000 people are paying hundreds more a month on their mortgages. Energy bills going back up, the economy shrinking again. The Labour Party have set out what they call their five missions. In truth, those sound like the key priorities of of any uh, modern government, really, in that they say their key priorities are growth, climate change, education, the NHS and policing. That's all pretty standard fare. There's be a huge amount of work to sort of detoxify the Labour brand and establish Keir Starmer as a credible statesman-like figure. Statesman-like is too strong a word, at least a sort of a realistic administrator for the country. Looking to other parties, we're going to see the first annual press conference of Reform UK, which is the successor to the Brexit party, uh, which in turn was the successor to UKIP. They'll be looking to sort of nibble around the edges of 
the Conservative vote. Lots of Conservative MPs are pretty nervous about that. They can see that maybe the older voters are the voters who supported Brexit leeching away as a form of protest to uh, Reform UK. Whether that's actually going to manifest in a major way in the sort of way that we saw happening about 10 years ago, I'm slightly sceptical, but it's a problem for the Tories. Also, we need to keep a close eye on the Liberal Democrats polling around 10 points in the polls. They're seen as more of a threat in the Conservative sort of leafier, remain voting southern seats, some seats which have been very, very safe Conservative seats for generations, starting to drift away from the Tories as voters there perhaps become slightly more graduate, slightly more liberal, feel rather disenfranchised perhaps by some of the more Brexity rhetoric, uh, for want of a better word, from the Conservative Party. So the issues for the Tories really is that they are going to be fighting on multiple fronts against multiple rivals and really going to have to work very, very hard to keep their coalition together. Matthew, you paint a grim picture for the Tories. Is there any way that they could still hold on to power? This idea that the Tories are destined to lose certainly shouldn't be a foregone conclusion, partly because of what we know about the volatility of the British electorate in recent years. They are going to spend the coming weeks and months absolutely hammering away at perceived weaknesses in the Labour Party's leadership, this notion that Keir Starmer has not been straight with people about what he believes and what his core ideas are. And they're really, really going to try and frame voters thinking around Labour's economic credibility and particularly this sum of £28 billion, which was a figure the party set out in 2021 for a big annual spending on decarbonisation and new green electricity plant, which the party has sort of since wobbling on as the state of the public finances has become clear. The Tories are going to be talking about £28 billion, an awful lot. They're going to spend the next month basically hammering the Labour Party. And now, given all that, when do you think that Rishi Sunak might call the election? So Sunak has... Broadly, two options. He could go for uh, May or push June, or he could uh, go in October, November. Labour are going to talk up the May option to coincide with local elections, partly because they want to get their activists ready, but also because it makes Sunak look like a chicken if he doesn't do it. Lots of Conservatives uh, urging to go for autumn in the hope that uh, declining inflation means the party uh, gets some credit for that, it's not entirely apparent if that would be the case, partly because you have to factor in the fact that lots of people are having their mortgages renewed, which means that their borrowing costs are going to be higher than they would have been otherwise. I'm not booking any holiday yet, I think it's fair to say, until we get a clearer picture from the government about the landing zone at this point. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. When it comes to whiskey, there's something going on in India, and we on The Intelligence never let you listeners miss out on a boozy trend. In the interests of quality journalism, my producer Emily has procured for me a little sample bottle of an Indian brand called Paul John, their classic. And as a sign of my commitment to this story, I'm going to give it a try. Paul John's marketing says it's made using barley from the foothills of the Himalayas and is distilled and matured in Goa, producing a fruity spirit with a creamy texture. I get the the fruity, maybe not so much on the creamy. And at 55.2%, it's, um, it's pretty potent. Anyway, I'm no expert, just an enthusiast. The awards that Paul John and other Indian brands are winning speak for themselves. 
So for most of my lifetime, what was called whiskey in India wasn't actually whiskey as you know it, or most people know it. It was basically extra neutral alcohol, which is an industrial spirit, which was then flavored and colored and bottled and had the name whiskey slapped on it, along with some faux Scottish sounding brand names. Leo Marani is an India correspondent for The Economist. Actual whiskey, proper whiskey, which is, you know, you take grain, you mold it, you distill it, blah, blah, blah. That tended to be imported and very expensive. But over the past couple of decades, but especially over the past few years, Indian booze makers have started turning to the traditional method of making whiskey, actual whiskey in other words. And as it turns out, they're making some surprisingly delicious and high quality stuff. You say it's good, but I know that whiskey nerds are often extremely snooty about scotch that's not from Scotland. Uh, this is true. Whiskey nerds are insufferable, you and I can both agree. However, there are certain whiskey nerds who serve on the juries of whiskey awards, these things exist, and they seem to agree that this stuff is good. Dick Paul John, it's a whiskey that has its distillery in Goa, which I went to visit all in the line of duty, and they have won over 300 awards in the past decade or so. Recently, a relatively new distiller called Indri won double best in show at the Whiskies of the World Awards in America. And then there's Amrit, which is the oldest one of the lot, which has also won a ton of awards. So, look, this is not really my judgment here, Jason. I'm just taking the word of the experts, your whiskey nerds, in fact. As a result, India's alcohol sales are growing at a really fast clip. And the industry expects that India's alcohol sales will grow by around 6% a year, roughly in line with GDP. Make of that what you will. And so Indian distilleries are looking at this market and going, why shouldn't we participate in this? Why should we only make the high-volume, low-value stuff, and instead we could be making the good stuff, which has enormous margins. But aside from this greater taste for a more premium whiskey experience, it sounds as if Indians just have a greater taste for booze in a general sense. <laughs> this is true. I mean, a number of things are happening, right? So, first of all, India has a weird relationship with alcohol. Prohibition is written into the directive principles of state policy in our constitution. And by and large, it doesn't sort of lubricate social occasions in as widespread a manner as it does in the UK, for instance. Nonetheless, it is growing more socially acceptable, especially in the middle and upper middle classes. At the same time, the middle and upper middle classes are expanding. Their tastes, they have expanded. And third, I mean, this is a softer thing, really, a softer reason. But over the past few years, the sort of self-confidence of India and of Indians has grown. And for the longest time, I mean, when I was growing up, anything... Indian was seen as inferior, anything imported was seen as automatically superior. And Indians have sort of shed that weird complex now, or are shedding, it's still, it's still going on, that weird complex. And so there's a much, much greater acceptance of domestically manufactured high-end goods. I mean, that sounds like a situation that's not only good for businesses in India making, well, high-end stuff, including booze, but also perhaps for foreign concerns to get in on the action. Well, yes and no, Jason, this tends to be the answer to many of your questions. So on the one hand, on the yes hand, if you will, spirits are a big chunk of the booze market, about 40%, okay? And despite the tiny proportion of Indians who can afford scotch, India has become the biggest export market for scotch. On the other hand, India imposes 150% import duty on scotch, which is, by the by, part of negotiations between India and the United Kingdom on their free trade agreement at the moment. So there's opportunity, certainly, the opportunity for foreign brands, and there's opportunity for local brands as long as they continue to make good stuff. So the Paul John distilleries want to double their capacity from 25,000 barrels a year to 50,000. And what foreign brands are doing, though, 
is they are getting in on the domestic premium spirits. So, for example, Diageo, which is this giant multinational liquor company, launched its own single malt recently. It's called Godawan. Sazerac, which is an American whiskey maker, they're a big investor in John Distilleries, and they've recently more than doubled their stake in the firm. So there's excitement everywhere. There's action for foreign multinational companies. There's opportunity for Indian companies. And I think, best of all, there's greater choice, variety, and quality for Indian consumers. Such as yourself. Such as myself, Jason. Um, and as you know, as is written in the terms of my contract, I charge one bottle per appearance on your show. <laughs> Leo, thanks very much for your time and um, happy further explorations in this topic. I look forward to doing some research with you when you visit Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Thanks for listening. Get in touch anytime at podcasts at economist.com and we'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.